0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target cancer-causing proteins and
1: destroy them right inside the cell. Learn more at DanaFarber.org everywhere.
0: I'm Gregory Warner. This is Rough Translation. Our episode this week comes out Friday. It's a collaboration. So in the meantime, we're just going to revisit a story from last season that feels even more relevant today. It's about a country where fake news might have triggered a real war. But it's also about how life with fake facts makes it harder for us to talk to each other, makes us think differently about the divisions in our own country and what we can hope to do about them. Hello, Ruslan. Ruslan is a journalist.
1: Ruslan
0: in Kiev, Ukraine, and he spent thousands of hours watching Russian TV, trying to sort the real from the fake.
1: My family members, they, they are complaining that, oh, you watch uh, Russian television all the time. Uh, they, they lie all the time, and uh, we have to, to listen all these lies about Ukraine.
0: I'd first heard about Ruslan's project three years ago when I was in Ukraine for NPR. One of the stories I was reporting was about how fake news from Russia was streaming over the border into Ukraine. I, though, was not using the words fake news in 2014, Americans were not using that phrase, but Ruslan was. And so what do you think Americans can learn from Ukraine example? What's the lesson for us?
1: Yeah, the, the, the very first lesson, do not ignore this problem, because it allowed Russian media to influence uh, local people to, to kill each other.
0: Rough Translation is a show from NPR where we follow a conversation that we are having in the United States and hear how it's playing out in some other corner of the world. Today we're going to go to a place where some of Russia's fake news tactics were first developed and tested and rolled out. Ukraine has dealt with fake news in higher doses than almost anything we can imagine. There's a war right now in eastern Ukraine. We're going to go to the front lines. And along the way we're going to trace an evolution that is eerily like our own. From how fake news was just a nuisance, to fake news seen as a weapon, to fake news suddenly becoming a kind of cancer. July 2016, a woman calls 911. Got she sees a man who she says looks mentally, mentally Ill, Ill. And she says she thinks he's got a gun. Or at least something shaped like a, a gun. Dog. The police come, they shoot, oh, fired. but they shoot the wrong guy.
1: Whole fire.
0: Hear what happened on the Embedded Podcast.
1: Hello, Greg. How are you? Get on board. <laughs> Thank
0: you. Sunday morning, outskirts of Kiev, Ruslan Denichenko picks me up to take me to his house.
1: Uh, Hello, good morning. <laughs>
0: he's got a boyish face. Graying Temples, Led Zepp on the car radio. Ruslan trained as a journalist in America, and the house where he lives is not like anything I've seen in Ukraine. What are the styles of these houses called?
1: Yeah, they call it North American style.
0: North American style. North American. <laughs> it's a gated community that promises American-style cottage living, down to the traditional American barbecue area.
1: Even uh, names of the streets, they, they're written in English. And... Over there is a Lexington Avenue <laughs> and Oh, Lexington Avenue. So, Lexington Avenue.
0: <laughs> and every yard has a picket fence.
1: I don't like when people build these huge fences and uh, Ruslan can look right over his fence at his neighbors and
0: his neighbors can look over their fence at him.
1: This style of life represents my <laughs> probably my imagination about the the way I would like the whole country lived, more transparent, more friendly, talking to each other, discussing issues, discussing problems.
0: The reason I went to Ukraine back in 2014 was because the country had just had a pro-democracy revolution. Protesters in the capital, Kiev, demanded that the government take steps to join Europe and become less dependent on its neighbor, Russia. — Russia opposed this uprising. It wanted Ukraine to stay its little brother, its mlači brat. But when the protesters succeeded and the pro-Russian president fled, Ruslan realized that Russia was fighting back, but in a way that took him a while to understand. Russia did not send tanks or bombs, not at first. First, They sent news. (laughs) Ruslan would turn on his TV to these Russian channels that millions of Ukrainians were watching, and he'd hear warnings about neo-Nazi fascists roaming the streets.
1: People uh, saw on TV that they're in danger and they need to protect their families, they need to protect themselves from fascists in Kiev. But there were no fascists here. Ruslan could look out his window
0: and see the streets were peaceful. Barricades on the square in Kiev were covered with fresh flowers. But Ukrainians who were not in the capital, Kiev, got scared. So while Ruslan would watch these stories and think,
1: <laughs> some, some bullshit.
0: <laughs> in other parts of the country, people started standing guard. Ukrainians in Crimea rose up. They rejected the revolution. <laughs> They want to be part of Russia. Yeah, everybody, everyone is Russia, and uh, the Crimea was Russian before, so... Protesters in Crimea quoted the Russian TV stories about fascists, begged Russian troops to save them.
1: There there seems to be a kind of feeling that the new government in Kiev is hostile to, to Russian speakers and ethnic Russians here.
0: Russian troops arrived, and Crimea voted to secede. Ukraine wanted to fight back, and the solution they came up with was a news blockade. A complete
1: ban on Russian news channels. I was against that decision. I was in favor of as much sources of information as possible. A
0: Ukraine that banned media? This is not democratic. Th- that wasn't the Ukraine that the revolution had fought for.
1: Ukraine, if you want to be a democracy, should allow uh, to have another opinion.
0: And Western diplomats agreed.
1: This is censorship.
0: The government backed down because of free speech and democracy, and Ruslan came up with a radical new plan to fight back. A team of top journalists would fact-check Russian news and broadcast the results. And at the time, that felt really scary. To me, it actually meant that I'm kind of putting my life on the line. This is Margot. I'm Margot Gonsard. She was tapped to host a show that would debunk Russian fake news. And so it would be her face on the screen that any Kremlin agents might take note of.
1: Yeah, I got my knees shaking. I got my knees shaking for half an hour.
0: What did you tell yourself before you went on the first time?
1: I'm doing this because I think this is what should be done. And I, like, I'm like i coping with all the consequences it can bring with it. It was actually kind of the first moment I really felt connection with, with like my people, you can say.
0: The name of this new show, it even sounded like a journalist superhero. The show is called Stop Fake. It's a roundup of all the false stories you might have missed that week. Welcome to Stop Fake. There's also an English version of the broadcast. And I'll be helping you to tread through this week's load of informational mendacity. Ukraine's ballet dancer Sirhi Polunin is a Nazi. Pending food riots and ration cards.
1: Played with these human organs included nasal septums and sphincters.
0: The Stop Fake team would trace how false quotes were shared from outlet to outlet. They blew up videos to show where the vial of fake blood might be hiding. Published a story with this misleading headline. And you can hear many of the stories. Ukraine is
1: poised to enact a new language law, which will ban Russian and make... Or
0: about Ukraine Russian speakers being persecuted in Ukraine. Only Ukrainian cafes and shops because announced Because of pending legislation on the Ukrainian language. To understand what was going on here, it helps to think of Ukraine as kind of two Ukraines, East and West, The east borders Russia. It's got more Russian speakers. The west borders Europe. It has more Ukrainian speakers. And east and west, they're not different ethnicities. They're more like cultural groups. But there has been friction in the past. And Ruslan says it was easy for Russian news to insert itself into this
1: divide. They want one part of the country Russian-speaking to hate another part of the country Ukrainian-speaking. This was one of those stories on Russian TV... It reported that
0: Ukrainian soldiers had seized a Russian-speaking toddler, ritually stabbed him, and then nailed him to a plank of wood. A literal crucifixion. StopFake team and other outlets looked into this story. There were no other witnesses to this crucifixion that supposedly happened in front of a huge crowd. StopFake also found extremely similar phrasing in the Facebook post of a Russian extremist published three days before the TV channel reported it. And a few months before that, a very similar crucifixion scene playing out in a show that is very popular in Russia, Game of Thrones. That's it for this week. Remember, consuming fake news is bad for your health, your brain, and the psychological climate of society. At first, StopFake was a success beyond what Ruslan had even imagined. The debunked stories were a hit on social media, and other news outlets picked up their stories. More than that, the StopFake crew of volunteers felt like they were winning the war. The war for truth. And then... The real war came. The situation in eastern Ukraine seems to be getting worse. Separatist militias were rising up in all kinds of eastern cities. The police line wasn't strong enough. City of Donetsk came under heavy attack today. Rejecting the government of Kiev, declaring allegiance to Moscow, getting help from Russia. This morning, gunmen in camouflage fatigues took over. Ruslan was watching station. his country split in two, wondering, what did he miss? What more could he have done? The clue came one sleepless night after watching all this war news. He thought back to one of the stories that he had debunked months before. It was a little story. Russian media had claimed that thousands of Ukrainians were fleeing over the border to Russia. This was back before the war had started, when Ukraine was peaceful.
1: Yeah, so I called the Federal Migration Service of Russia.
0: He taped the phone call, for stop mm-hmm.
1: And asked... The, the person from, from Federal Migration Service, if it's true or not. Was it
0: true that even though there was no war, no violence in eastern Ukraine, that thousands of people in the east were abandoning their homes for refugee status in Russia?
1: She told me, no, this is not true. We, we have just uh, several phone calls and, uh, yeah, we have nothing unusual.
0: Thousands of Ukrainians were not fleeing to Russia. Because why would they, right? I mean, Ukraine was totally peaceful. Except Ruslan did not hang up just then. He kept talking to this Russian official. And what she told him next, he would not realize the significance of until months later. Months later when war had come to eastern Ukraine and thousands of people were fleeing their
1: homes. It was several months later, in the middle of the night, when I remembered that phone conversation and I went to my computer and I uh listened this conversation again, and bam, it was it was kind of a thunderstrike to my head. What she had told him was that yes, there were no refugees right now. But she told me that we have received an order from Moscow to prepare places for refugees. So there were no refugees, but they were starting preparation process for refugees. Ruslan had thought the news was not true. Actually, it just
0: wasn't true yet.
1: Yes, sometimes they just preparing you f- for events that still have not happened.
0: This seemed like something a lot weirder and a lot more dangerous. Before, he'd known that fake news could inspire fear and distrust. But now it seemed to be planting ideas in people's heads. And for Ruslan, this little moment on the phone with the Russian official... It felt like he'd accidentally pulled back the curtain on the stage set before it was done.
1: So now when I saw something on Russian television, I usually ask myself, what might be their plan? Ruslan
0: started to doubt that truth alone could win this war, especially if today's fake news could become tomorrow's reality. When Rough Translation returns, we're going to go east, to the place where the information war and the real war Meet. Whether it's athlete protests, the Muslim travel ban, gun violence, school reform, or just the music that's giving you life right now, race is the subtext to so much of the American story. And on Code Switch, we make that subtext text. You can listen to us on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. When you drive out to the front lines in eastern Ukraine, you have to leave early. For much of the trip, my car is the only one on the four-lane highway. We slow down just to pass through each Ukrainian army checkpoint. If you imagine Texas, which is about the same size as Ukraine, imagine a piece of Texas pledged allegiance to Mexico and started trading in pesos. There is now a line that's dividing eastern Ukraine, and on one side of that line are separatists, who reject the government in Kiev and get help from Moscow. This side of the line is patrolled by Ukrainian government troops. I am now 500 miles east of Kiev, 500 miles from Ruslan's picket fences and his Lexington Avenue, and I'm getting another house tour. Oh, this was destroyed by the shelling. This one from Alexander Ivanovich, age 64. He shows me where a shell fell on his dog house. His dog died. Oh, my gosh. Another hit a tree. We're only alive because of a tree, he tells me. Alexander lives on the government side, two miles from that front line. His sister lives on the separatist side, and his father's grave is over there. And the screen door opens. His wife, Nadježda, greets us, me and my interpreter. She says, nice to meet you. Aren't you afraid to come visit?
1: to <laughs> already
0: I'm out here to follow up on that odd thing that Ruslan told me about how today's fake news may tell you what'll really happen tomorrow. And of all the folks I meet in Avdivka, it feels like Alexander, this guy showing me around his backyard, is the most likely to have an answer because he is this town's only newspaper seller. <laughs> I met him earlier that morning in a market at the center of town in his corrugated metal shack filled with newspapers. It's a market where you see locals mixing with soldiers in their green uniforms, buying provisions. Army trucks are rolling by. Alexander's got laugh lines all over his face, including in front of his ears like sideburns. Everyone seems to know him. Some just call him Uncle Sasha. They come here to rib him with jokes, to complain about their health, to sigh, and to discuss the news. Did you discuss the news with people? Yes, of course, he
1: says.
0: He says, they very much want to know what's going on, how Ukraine is living. That means a lot, you know? We don't want to be cut off from the country. Which makes what he tells me next so odd. He reads the news all the time, but when he sees a journalist coming around... He gets scared. If the television crews show up, that's when the shelling begins. I don't get it, though, what that means, that the journalists come and then they start shelling. Like... That's why our relationship with the press is very tense, he says. When he sees a TV crew, he says, they try to leave immediately because they start to shell in exactly that place. Gregory. A little later, a different part of town, these two other guys start waving me away as soon as I approach with my interpreter. As we introduce ourselves as journalists, they're like, Fellas, please, don't come to this spot.
1: When you arrive, uh, we are starting to be shelled. I'm not, I didn't
0: do the shelling. You can hear, I, I'm still treating this like a joke that I just don't get. But then, a few minutes later, when those guys have left, I'm standing on the same street corner with my interpreter, Anton. Says you know, you know everybody like strongly believes here yeah, that
1: every time you arrive to such kind of towns,
0: every town on the front lines,
1: everybody saying, "Oh, you know, you're journalists you now will be, we will be attacked uh, because you know, When journalists arrive, uh, the war starts. When
0: journalists arrive, the war starts. I couldn't put this out of my mind. Because it means that people here believe that this war is being fought mainly so that someone else can watch it on TV. It's like a reality show war, but with real bullets. And Alexander is one of the unwilling extras. Alexander even told me, we We already know in advance it's a show, and we don't like it. There's actually an old Russian joke from Soviet times. It goes like, in America, you do X, but in Russia, X does you. For example, in America, you can always find a party. In Russia, the party finds you. In America, you break the law. In Russia, the law breaks you. There's so many versions of this joke, it actually has a name. It's called the Russian Reversal. And listening to the people in Avdivka, I felt like I'd walked into the middle of that joke. I'd come to see how people watch the news, and they're telling me, no, here on the front lines... The News Watches You. Back in Kiev, on Ruslan's patio, he's chopping wood with this little axe. It's like Ukrainian village meets suburban... uh, Firing up the grill for his family's favorite Sunday meal, cheeseburgers. I want to ask Ruslan to make sense of what I'd heard on the front lines about this being some kind of reality show war. But before I can even bring it up, he wants to show me something. He leads me to the living room. There's this kid playing on the floor. Well, There's a separatist TV channel. Yeah. They... On the screen is a guy in camouflage fatigues. He's one of the Ukrainian separatists who has declared independence from Kiev. The press conference is actually taking place on the other side of that front line. But Ruslan is not apparently interested in what that guy is saying. The channel's on mute. He directs my attention down to the bottom of the screen where the microphones are arrayed on the podium. He's counting the Russian mics.
1: When you see one or two mics, and these are local TV channels, it's okay. But when you see 10 mics from Russian TV networks, it means they are going to to do something. It's either shelling or some kind of events that might be dangerous.
0: See, the people in Avdivka know that because when I came, they said, we don't like you journalists because when you journalists come...
1: Yeah, so... I think local people, they have noticed this uh, correlation.
0: There is this one really unnerving difference between his theory and the one that I heard out in the front lines. For Ruslan, it's the Russian mics that you have to watch out for. They're there to make Ukraine look bad. But for Alexander, it's the Ukrainian mics aiming to make Russia look like the bad guys. Which is improbable, but almost impossible to fact-check in the fog of war. The perception that it is true, though, is almost as scary. Both Ruslan and Alexander believe that journalists are in cahoots with their governments, fighting the information war alongside the real one. And if you believe that, you can just ignore any piece of news that you don't agree with. Just chalk it up to enemy strategy. Back in Kiev, Ruslan decided that the Russian media was the enemy. And fact-checking was not going to save Ukraine.
1: So then we realized that we need to protect, not just our profession, but to protect the whole country, because it was a question of surviving for for, for Ukraine.
0: And for Ruslan, the only option left was the one that he'd once begged the Ukrainian government not to do, to censor the Russian news
1: channels. I changed my mind uh, dramatically. I was 100% sure, I was damn sure that we need to cut it right away.
0: StopFake handed its archive of Russian propaganda techniques to the Ukrainian government, which promptly used it as
1: evidence. If we did it earlier, I think we might avoid a lot of deaths. Ruslan
0: believes this ban did stop the front line from moving further west. It prevented more Ukrainian cities from falling under separatist control. It also opened his mind to the power of censorship. Watching TV one day with his three-year-old, he heard the hosts of this Russian kids' show praising Vladimir Putin for protecting Ukraine. Ruslan sent an angry tweet, and that show was pulled off the air. And then also cut were Russian talk shows and soap operas, a wildlife channel, hunting and fishing show.
1: And Ruslan defends all this. Uh, I'm not sure if we are 100% protected right now, but at least we are moving in in the right direction to protect ourselves.
0: Ukraine then took this direction even further. A Ukrainian hacker group with ties to the government published a list of every journalist who crossed that front line to interview people on the other side. Thousands of journalists were on this list, including a number of international journalists from NPR, from the New York Times. The title of this list was simply scoundrels. A Ukrainian lawmaker called them terrorist collaborators simply because they had just gone over to the separatist side of the line to interview people. Ruslan did not see any problem with the
1: list. Mm. Why not? I think what they do is is useful. Publishing names, emails, and uh, personal information of reporters. It might be okay but labeling them all enemies it was it was stupid.
0: Uh, it wasn't it worse than stupid though? I mean it seems pretty intimidating of journalists
1: uh, yes, naming them traitors that was not r- right. sometimes it's not very easy to to tell. Yeah, to be just (laughs) straightforward and to... Neutral. Yeah, neutral. Yeah. We want this country to exist.
0: cost to fighting an information war. The obvious one is that you start to adopt the tactics of your enemy. Today, it's common to hear a critic of the Ukrainian government tagged a Kremlin agent. There's even a term for someone who's an agent without actually getting money or direction from Russia. They're called an unwitting agent. Ruslan, though, talks about a different cost. Spending so much of his time fact-checking fakes, he's got no time to write stories about Ukrainians who are making things work, despite their differences. The sort of stories that he imagined himself writing when he first moved to that house with the picket fences.
1: Stories that inspire other people. This this inspires. This is true journal, journalism. Uh, to check somebody's lies and to to keep somebody accountable. I cannot tell that. I, I I'd be happy to do it all my life, right? I, I I'm afraid that Russia understands it and. Uh, they do their best to to make us enemies forever and at the end of the day it will be very difficult to sit at the table and talk like like friends.
0: Stay tuned on Friday for another rough translation about a Me Too moment happening in the least likely of places. Behind the scenes of an Argentine talk show whose host may or may not have had a change of heart, that may or may not have affected millions of people. Today's show was produced by Jess Jang and edited by Marianne McCune. Thank you to Lucian Kim, NPR's Moscow Bureau Chief, also Ukrainian journalists Natalia Grivniak and Anton Skiba, and Peter Pomerantsev, Joanna Shostek, Megan Metzger, Dennis Dukal. Thanks to the Planet Money team for editorial guidance, also Lou Kowski, Laura Starchewski, Michael May, and Charles Maines. Fact-checking for this episode by Camille Salas, and mastering by Andy Huther. Rough Translation is advised by Neil Carruth, Alex Goldmark, Mathilde Piard, and Anya Grunman. We would love to hear from you. Rate the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps people discover the show. And write us that travel story you're still trying to decode. You can email us, roughtranslation at npr.org, or find us on Facebook. Previous episodes at npr.org slash roughtranslation. Original music composed by John Ellis. I'm Gregory Warner, back next week with more Rough Translation. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the American Cancer Society. By the end of this message, two people will be told they have cancer. Yes, every 15 seconds, someone is diagnosed with cancer. But by the end of this message, you could do something about it with your donation. A gift of any amount to the American Cancer Society can help those facing cancer get free rides to care or a free place to stay closer to treatment. Donate today at cancer.org.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Here at Planet Money, we bring complex economic ideas down to Earth. We find
0: weird, fun, interesting stories that explain the way money shapes our lives. Inflation,
1: recessions, the price of gas. We've got you. Listen now to the Planet Money podcast from NPR.